Woe is me. Book One of the Horror Wars. The goblins really had been there. They might return, and they did. It was as if the splendor of life might boil over and waste to steam and froth. In its dissolution one heard the terrible, ominous note, and a goblin, with increased malignity, walked quietly over the universe from end to end. Panic and emptiness! Panic and emptiness! Even the flaming ramparts of the world might fall. E. M. Forster, Howard's End Chapter Null, Out of Time The girl kneels on the cold steel drain, its gaps biting into her knees. She pulls the thin cotton of her torn gown down, but it's too short to cover her legs. She shivers and moans, her shattered vocal cords capable of nothing more than a croak. Her eyelids stick together. She uses her fingers to pull them apart. Her hands pass over her skull. She has no hair left, not even stubble. She moans again. Her neck is numb. Her face and hands and legs are numb. The middle of her back and her chattering teeth are numb. Her head twitches as it swivels, as if it's about to fall off. She stares blankly at the metal bars surrounding her. Dim moonlight angles in onto the black rubber mats covering the floor. The half-moon suddenly swings oddly across the sky and the floor beneath her seesaws. An engine she hadn't even registered suddenly cuts out. She rocks back, metal clanking. Oh, it's a cage. She's locked in a cage on the back of a transport that just stopped. Help, she says, the word a puff of breath so gentle it hardly leaves her mouth. Help me, please. Cameras stare down at her from the top corners of the cage. She looks up at them, beseechingly, then realizes they're off, the little light's dark. The air is heavy with silence. The driver hasn't moved in the sealed cab ahead. Nobody can hear her. And then... Horrible noises, too wrong to exist, whisper to her from outside the cage. Oh no she mutters, scurrying back away from them. She presses her back against the bars behind her, hope draining from her, like the liquid streaming from the corners of the transport and spattering on the ground. Other noises rise from behind, grunts and cackles and moans of despair. She screams and falls forward away from them, back onto the drain in the center of the little cage. She screams again, whipping her unfeeling neck around, hearing noise from every direction. She is surrounded. Night. It's night out there. Nothing stands between her and the darkness outside but these narrow square bars, each wall of the cage a dozen dark vertical lines against the moonlight, crossed by braces and reinforced at each corner. Past these silhouettes, dim shapes in the distance come into focus, the pale steeple of a church and a long building attached to it, fenced tennis courts across the parking lot, a lawn sloping down to a line of dark trees. She hears them in the trees. She hears them behind the church buildings. Now they've gathered, grunting to each other, scheming. They rise as shadows against the night, scurrying and lurching forward, claws scraping the asphalt, 
No, 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 she whimpers, seeing moonlight reflecting in their glittering black eyes and the blades in their hands. Their voices grow unbearably loud in her head as their gabble rises in her ears. They do not charge for once. They know she is surrounded. They take their time, savoring her terror. Help, she screams at the driver in the dark cab. She can see nothing ahead of her, not even a darkened window. The cab is a white metal box, completely cut off from her. No sound comes from it. Nothing. Help! The monsters in the dark snicker at the desperation in her voice. She swings her arms, manic and futile, and only now notices the chains attached to cuffs on her wrists. She looks down and sees a tangle of links. She wears ankle cuffs as well. She's chained down in the cage. She sobs. Her hand rises unwillingly to the base of her neck. A bolt is fastened to the bones of her spine, her sixth vertebra. She sobs again, remembering everything now. She is literally anchored in place, unable to hide any longer from what she has become. Bait. One of the goblins springs onto the back of the truck, its needle fangs gleaming. It noses its broad muzzle between the bars, then pulls its head back with a hiss and jabs its spear through the bars. The blade is crooked and notched, but razor sharp. It snaps forward and flays the flesh of her upper arm almost to the bone. Her scream of pain is white noise. Behind her, another goblin leaps onto the transport with a wicked hiss, and its spear punctures her back, sliding between ribs. She topples to her side, coughing and whimpering in pain. Then the two goblins fall back. The platform tilts, and its suspension squeals. Something gigantic has just stepped onto the transport behind her. An ogre. She can smell its carrion breath. From within the cab, she hears a man's voice. Positions. A hatch opens above the cab. A machine gun swivels up and out, locking into place. A soldier in a black helmet crouches behind it. Fire. The night erupts with its deafening roar. Tracers, searing white, vanish into the hulk of the ogre at the tailgate. It pitches backward with a groan. The monsters surrounding the truck scream in outrage and surge forward. The machine gun cuts them down, firing in a spiral around the transport. But others crowd forward, claws reaching out. They mass from behind, a growing army of goblins and trolls and ogres. The machine gun can't kill them all. The gunner suddenly stops firing as the transport's engine sputters to life. Two trolls and a handful of goblins leap onto the platform beside the cage and reach for her. She watches, eyes hopeless, blood welling up inside her lungs. The goblins press up against the bars, stabbing her again and again with their spears. Numbness spreads through her body, but she still feels each thrust. She wishes she didn't have to deal with the pain. It cuts all reason away, all hope and every sense of what it is to be human. If only there could be more numbness and less pain. The transport rolls clear and the machine gun barks again blowing the head of one troll off. Its body flies backward from the platform and the stream of bullets twitches to the next one, sending it spinning away. The goblins are too small, though. They hunker down at the base of the cage, lower than the machine gun can tilt. So the gunner fires bursts at the army of monsters gathering behind them instead. The tracers ignite the liquid they'd spilled on the ground. It flares like gasoline, blue and yellow. Fire bursts through the ranks of goblins and trolls. 
The monsters burn in a sudden conflagration like a brush fire in a drought. They howl as they die, screeching their hatred, vanishing quickly from green flame into stinking black smoke. The remainder close in, raggedly now, just a few left. Behind them the church burns, orange flame licking up its walls. The trees around the tennis courts catch fire. The dark silhouettes of ogres and trolls still lumber forward, the goblins bounding ahead, never a thought of surrender. Goblin spearheads vanish again and again into her body. She's been stabbed so many times she's lost count. She wants to black out, but she can't. The pain drums into her like a rainstorm, a torrential downpour, yet the pool growing around her body isn't rainwater. The machine gun clears the area, cutting the monsters to pieces. Soon the four goblins torturing her are the only ones left. Suddenly, an electronic beep chimes from within the cab. We have power, the gunner says. Roger, another voice answers from inside the cab. Okay, clearing the cage. A faint hum is all the warning the goblins get. Electricity courses through the bars. Three goblins detonate, flying away from the transport in a cloud of smoke. She goes completely still, protected by the black rubber mats on the cage floor. She doesn't move a muscle. The fourth goblin, who hadn't been touching the bars, hisses and points its spear at the cage. It approaches, wary. A thin bolt of ice-blue lightning runs from the nearest bar to the tip of its spear. The goblin cocks its head and sniffs. It reaches out a finger to touch the bar. The goblin's arm blasts away, tearing out of its shoulder. Its dead body spins backward into the dark, the blast of the detonation echoing across the parking lot. Now all the monsters are dead, the landscape a burning scene from the apocalypse. The faint hum stops. Silence in the moonlight, only the crackle of the burning church. She sits up, weak as a baby, finally numb from her head to her toes. She looks down at her hacked and punctured body. With dismay, she watches as her skin shivers and her wounds begin to close of their own accord. The streams of green blood running across her skin contracting like worms back into her body. The gunner tilts a light down into the cage, onto the bald girl lying in her pool of green blood. How you doing down there? He asks coldly. You make it? So thirsty. Once she sees all the blood, she realizes how thirsty she is. The gunner speaks to someone in the cab. So she's thirsty? Yeah, I guess. Only if you don't want it back. The gunner lifts a water bottle and tosses it to her. Here. Drink up, green blood. We got like five more stops tonight before the county is clear. Chapter One The Race and the Doll and the Storm They rounded the final turn and began their kick, legs stretching along the last straightaway. This was where the race was won. But what had begun as a building ache in Mac's diaphragm now grew into stabbing spasms. He worked his arms and gasped deeply, fighting his way through the thick, hot air, his swimming gaze fixed on Lacey's flickering white socks ahead of him. Brown ponytail bouncing, head high, she chased that tall Hispanic kid from Shasta Union, both of them unfairly taller than Mac by at least six inches. Their long legs pulled away from him no matter how hard he tried. Ahead of him, Lacey's body began to falter too. Her legs trembled and her arms lost their rhythm, 
No, 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 she told herself. I'm a runner, the best runner in the world. Nobody is faster than me. Her chest heaved, mouth open in a silent scream. At the finish line just ahead, Miss Itoya jumped up and down, banging on her clipboard and waving her visor. Lacey screamed and closed her eyes and threw herself headlong into the pain like a linebacker making a tackle. Mac kept fading, his arms sawing back and forth. He couldn't get enough air in his lungs. It just got thicker and thicker. No matter how hard he ran, the slower he went. The stitch in his side kept getting worse. One kid passed him, then another. Then even Sonny, that new girl from his school who had just started running three months ago, passed him. The pain was a knife under his ribs. Why would anybody even do this, he thought. And with that single question, his willpower snapped, and he stopped, ten paces from the finish line, hands on knees, watching the sweat drip from his face onto the track. His head cleared, and he finally looked up to see a knot of people standing on the far side of the finish line, crowding around a girl lying on her side. Lacey. Mac limped over to them. The Hispanic kid stood at Miss Atoya's side, asking, She okay? She okay? She won, Miss Atoya told the race official, a heavy old man with a red nose in a blue blazer who fired every starting pistol and recorded every race result. He knelt beside Lacey, talking to her. Ma'am, he said over his shoulder, holding up a hand to ward Miss Atoya off. Give me space so I can... But she won, Miss Atoya declared triumphant. You did it, Lacey! Mac neared, seeing that Lacey sobbed, her body quivering, her face as red as her jersey. The race official asked worried questions. You gonna be all right, miss? You need a doctor? Lacey was beyond the pain, detached. From a place deep inside herself, she counted her breaths and listened to the old man's kind words as Mac's shadow covered her shoulder like a comforting arm. She rolled over to him, the glare of the noonday sun blinding her, and smiled up at where she knew he must be. Mackie, you're crazy. You gonna live? Mac asked her. I, I did it. They sat in the stands after the meet, the aluminum benches hot against their legs, sharing an orange. A shiny gold medal on a blue ribbon hung from Lacey's neck. Mac had received a certificate of participation, which he had rolled up and stuffed in his shoe. Then he'd shoved the shoes into his duffel bag and stripped his jersey off, swearing he'd never wear them again. We sit together, Mac said to himself glumly, the gazelle and the frog. He hated how short and wide he was, how his straight red hair made him look like a hick, how his freckles covered his face like a raccoon's red mask, the stupid spotted frog. Lacey beside him wasn't necessarily beautiful or a genius, but she was definitely lean and graceful, yet like an animal who always gets preyed on, more than a little neurotic. Her face was more familiar to him than his own, her blunt nose and soft jaw, her pale, splotchy skin and wide, expressive mouth, her colorless hair pulled back in a topknot. Nothing in her face indicated what made her such a fierce competitor and tireless runner. She inspected a scrape on her knee, a red patch the size of a quarter. Oh, wow, she grimaced. It's weird how it doesn't even hurt until you see the blood. Ow, now it really hurts. So what was the point of all that? Mac demanded, knowing her. There always had to be a point. Lacey looked at him sideways, a knot of resentment lodged in her throat. 
She couldn't talk past it. Mac didn't need to know yet that her life was once again about to become a living hell, and the pain she just put herself through hadn't helped at all. She'd tell him later. She'd tell him that the smell of Febreze in Mom's bathroom meant that she was doing drugs again, that the burned spoon in the can at the back of the sink meant that Philo must be coming back around, bringing his whole gang of convicts with him. But nobody needed to know what that really meant, the horrible things it meant about Lacey herself. She'd never tell anyone about that. Ever. Finally, she managed. I had to see if that video was right. Which video? You know, she mimicked the narrator's voice. At the end of the race, a runner's form is always the difference between first and second place, Mac finished. Miss Atoya loves that guy. But she's wrong, and the jackass in the video is wrong, too. I proved it. Mac sighed, world-weary. I see. Congratulations. I could just hear those words in my head, and I needed to find out if willpower can beat form, and it can. Sure, for you it can, but Miss Atoya's wrong about a lot of things. She finally saw the storm on his brow. She had been so engaged in the challenges of the day that she hadn't taken a real look at him. Oh, yeah? Like what? Lacey peeled another section off the orange he held and left a sticky drop on his knee. Like me. She said I could be a runner, too. What? That was your first mile. You did great. I didn't even finish. Well, you weren't really trying. That one hurt. Max stood and shouldered his duffel. Yes, yes, I was, Lace. That's the thing. You don't know. Mac waved a hand at himself, indicating his whole body. You don't know what it's like. He walked away. Lacey cursed herself under her breath and followed. Well, this is quickly turning into one of the worst days of my life. Shh. Mac lay on his back under the classroom, a temporary building sitting on concrete posts out past the machine shop and P.E. locker rooms. How did I even get here? First, Lacey had consoled him entertained him with gossip and remembered jokes from sixth grade, then roped him into an impulsive plan for a prank that required him, him, not her, because he was the smaller one, to crawl under the spider-infested outbuilding and break into their classroom on a Friday afternoon, the absolute last time of the week he wanted to be anywhere near school. He laughed, lying in the dirt. What's funny? I'm going to get suspended from school for trying to go to school when I'm not supposed to be at school, and I don't even want to go to school, ever. Then you won't mind being suspended, she said brightly. Are you there yet? I don't know, he snapped. You tell me. This is your plan. Well, look, you can probably see light through the cracks. Lacey knelt back at the sunlit spot he had crawled in, her silhouette orange and hazy against the bright light behind her. He smelled dust and rotten food. Clumps of dead weeds hid any number of venomous creatures. Mac looked up and saw a square outlined in light. Hey, here it is. Yes, Lacey cried. I knew it. Mac pushed on the square and it lifted, hinges squeaking. He stood up. The classroom, dim and empty in the afternoon light, looked odd from this angle. He felt like a gopher burrowing up from below, or Bugs Bunny who had taken a wrong turn at Albuquerque. Lacey scratched urgently at the door. He lifted himself up to the floor and hurried over to it, his legs still aching from the race. He let her in. 
Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, she giggled, shutting the door behind her and crouching below the sight line of the windows. I can't believe it worked. I didn't even know there was a trap door down there. Mr. Daroon always keeps it under a rug and locked, but I unlocked it last Friday. Why does a classroom have a trap door? Once he showed it to me, Lacey said, hurrying to the supply cabinets on the side of the room. He said, this used to be a construction building, and they'd have huge cables running out through the floor. Now, hurry, go get Lisa. Max shook his head, doubting every bit of Lacey's plan. But he walked to the cabinet behind Mr. Daroon's desk anyway. He opened it and looked at Lisa, hanging on a hook. She was the sex ed doll that the sixth grade girls used when Mrs. Myers came in to teach her little ladies. Lisa was a big, floppy doll made from scraps, but with anatomically correct details under her dress. Oh, crap, she's heavy, Max said, realizing he needed a chair to get up high enough to lift her off the hook. Help me. Can't writing the ransom note oh, with my left hand so nobody knows. There. Done. Come on. Come on where? To the river. They ran under the oak trees by the river, Mac holding Lisa under her arms. She's like stuffed with sand. She's so heavy. Hold on. Mac dropped his duffel bag behind a tree. What are you doing, Mackie? Lacey complained. You're leaving clues. They'll find it. Your name is on like ten things in there. Can't carry it. I'll come right back for it. No, we can't come back this way. We have to loop around on the other side of the river so nobody can track us. Nobody even knows we're doing this, Lace. Oh, they will. Or cares. Mrs. Myers will lose her mind. Mac kicked his duffel bag into the blackberry bushes and threw Lisa over his shoulder. Where are we even going? Not sure yet. I was hoping we could hang her from the bridge or, like, set her up so it looked like she was about to jump, you know, with, like, a suicide note around her neck. But there's people everywhere. Wait, I know. Lacey returned to the blackberry bushes and dragged his duffel bag out, thorns snagging on nylon. She pulled it free and unzipped it, dumping his track gear onto the dirt. Come on, put her in here. Hurry, hurry. Why hurry? Lacey looked over his shoulder to the north horizon. Look. The mountains outside of town no longer bathed in sunshine. Storm clouds rose behind them, darkening the sky. Oh, no. Lacey. But see, it's our perfect chance. Come on. Shelter in place, Lacey. Oh, please, that's for babies. She stuffed Lisa's extremities into the duffel bag and zipped it shut. She lifted it and staggered. Seriously, what is she made of, lead? Mac grabbed one of the handles, and they carried the doll along the river trail. Mac kept casting worried glances at the sky. We should go home, Lace. No way. I've been dreaming too long of the look on Mrs. Meyer's face when she sees the ransom note. I'm not going to give up just for a little rain. I mean, it's not even a maelstrom. They reached the first highway bridge by the time it started to rain. September storms were usually short and warm. This one seemed to be no exception. Fat drops spattered down onto the dust and into the brown river. The concrete span arced overhead eight lanes wide. They hid under the bridge next to an abandoned shopping cart and a pile of trash, watching the dirt turn to mud. Great, Mac groaned. Now what? I don't know. Do you think Lisa looks like the suicidal type? Lacey pulled Lisa's cartoonish head from the bag. It flopped forward. I'd be if I was forced to stand in front of sixth grade girls for 20 years. Flashing them with my anatomically correct parts. They laughed, but a deep, 
unharmonic sound cut their fun short. They listened. Yes, they could hear it on the eastern horizon. Unmistakable. Oh no. Oh no, no, no. A maelstrom, Mac whispered. Lacey kicked the trash, furious. Why can't anything ever go my way? The storm grew stronger and a moaning wind picked up. The eastern sky darkened and the awful sound grew louder. Now the rain spattered the ground with black gobs. A low front swept in, beneath the storm from the north, and crossed through the valley from east to west. Mackie, Lacey said, suddenly worried. Shelter in place, he said as loud as he could, but his words sounded little and frightened in his own ears. The temperature dropped and the sky dimmed. Lacey and Mac gripped each other tight. The first thunderbolts slithered above them like giant snakes, not so much splitting the air as peeling it open. A dreadful sound. The eastern horizon flickered purple, then green. Sirens went off all over Redding. This was a full-strength maelstrom. Lacey and Mac dropped the duffel bag and ran up the slope to where the ground met the underside of the bridge. They hid between the steel trusses under the concrete deck, shivering. From there they could only see a sliver of ground, flashing purple and green in the dark. The sirens grew all around them. Mac took out his phone, but as happened with every maelstrom, the circuitry was scrambled, the line dead. The black rain drummed on the ground and on the bridge above them, an unrelenting downpour. It drained in malevolent streaks into the brown water of the river. After minutes that felt like hours, the downpour finally relented and the maelstrom passed, as did the storm that triggered it. The sky cleared, and within minutes, the sun returned. But neither of them had moved. Now for the scary part, Mac whispered. He leaned down and clutched a rock as big as his fist. Lacey looked grim, as if she was preparing herself for something detestable. I ain't scared of them. None of them. Not even... A screech interrupted her. A jumble of shadows spilled under the bridge from the far side and drew nearer. Lacey went pale. She gripped Mac's arm so hard it hurt. He lifted the rock and listened. Monsters. They cackled and snickered at each other in high, bird-like, snarling voices, utterly evil. One discovered the duffel bag and Lisa inside. Its voice rose in a nasty gabble of triumph. Lacey bent down, her ponytail touching her toes. She looked out. With a shudder, she straightened and whispered in Mac's ear, Goblins, like six of them. And they're doing horrible things to Lisa. Mac and Lacey looked at each other, hearing the click of metal on stone, the scrape and drag of flesh and tearing fabric, the wicked voices crowing in delight. Then Mac gripped Lacey tighter. Listen, he hissed. Her eyes grew wide with relief. She heard it too, the gas engine rattle of a one-man chopper. The rattle grew louder and the goblins protested with their screeches. Lacey and Mac peeked out from their hiding spot to see the goblins standing, looking out from under the bridge at the sky, their crooked spears held at the ready. The goblins were shorter than the kids, no more than four feet tall at the most, their bodies skinny and brittle like bundles of dried twigs. Their long skulls and fanged mouths rose, ears and noses twitching, seeking the source of the sound. Seven goblins in all, with the remains of Lisa in a scattered pile at their feet. The chopper dropped low, but they still couldn't see it. A loud voice blared from it. Warning! Stand clear! A hiss erupted from the chopper, and a small missile shot forward on a line of white smoke. 
It landed at the goblin's clawed feet with a blinding flash and an unbearable, clamorous bang, like crashing garbage trucks. Shrapnel cut through the beasts, chopping them off at the legs, killing them instantly. Little metal shards ran hissing with heat up the slope of the embankment toward the feet of Lacey and Mac. Smoke filled the underside of the bridge and their ears rang. They just held each other, shaking. The chopper appeared beneath them moments later, a quadcopter the size of Mac's family van, its rotors angled forward, a man in a helmet peering through the steel frame, searching the area. He didn't see them in the shadows. What do we do? mouthed Lacey. Chopper pilots were sworn to defend and rescue humans, but that didn't mean they wouldn't be in a lot of trouble for being out here during a maelstrom. Mac just shook his head. He wasn't going to go anywhere for approximately the next five days. He was just going to sit right here. Above the chopper's engine and the distant sirens, they heard the crunch of footsteps on the bridge above. Something big. Big enough to hear through the concrete deck. More sirens and choppers converged on it. A woman screamed. With a roar, it leapt from the bridge as the missiles hit. It landed on the riverbank slope beside them in a crouch. A troll. Oh my god, this was a troll. Lacey and Mac shared a horrified look, their fingers twisting together. Fear raced through Mac sharp as pain. Trolls were more rare, much larger than goblins, and far more dangerous. It spotted the chopper beneath the bridge as its weapon swiveled around. Its missiles fired, but the troll leapt to the side and snared the shopping cart, hurling it at the quadcopter with a sharp backhand. The cart fouled its blades and brought it down. The pilot yelled, twisting in his harness. The troll roared and leapt onto the wreckage. The slowing blades lashed its back and the pilot beneath fired a pistol again and again into the troll's body. But the troll's claw swept in and tore his head nearly off. Then the troll bashed the chopper into pieces with a shopping cart and threw the tangled wreck into the river. The troll scampered up the slope just as they had done. Gray skin mottled black and purple. It looked like a cross between a gorilla and a cadaver, seven feet tall but stooped with massive shoulders and arms that ended in curved claws. Its head swiveled, and its toothless mouth worked silently, the beak of a nose sniffing, the shiny black eyes squinting in the dark. It smelled them. Its sadistic laugh echoed among the steel girders. No, 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 Mac hissed. A distant voice shouted, Somebody military. A Nashgard squad. Black boots appeared beside the riverbank. The troll spun, facing the new threat, but it backed up to cover the kids and prevent them from escaping, a predator protecting its meal. The troll's roar was like an avalanche of sand, so dry it hurt their ears. Now the voice was closer and more clear. Fire team, fire team, troll under the bridge! Then a clamorous burst of weapon fire. The troll leapt clear. Lacey's ankle rocked to the side with unbearable force sweeping her from her feet. She screamed in terror, reaching for Mac, who grabbed her arms. The pain was so immense she was certain the troll had impaled her ankle on a claw to drag her from her hiding spot. But when she looked, the troll was down the slope, charging at a squad of five soldiers in black assault gear. Her ankle was covered in blood and turned inward. She stared stupidly at it. You got shot? Mac asked in a wondering voice. Down below, one of the soldiers saw them. We got civilians, he shouted. Cover me! The soldier, a tall and rangy black man with an intense gaze, dropped his rifle and circled around toward Lacey and Mac up the slope. The troll roared its white noise again, bounded in a flash, and pounced on him. 
The two tumbled down the slope, wrapped in each other's arms. The soldiers swarmed them, but the troll kicked them clear. It lifted the man it held. Two soldiers cut the troll down, their rifles barking. Green blood gouted from the troll's chest, and its desiccated torso cracked in half. The soldier in its claws fell heavily with a shout and slid down the slope. We need a fire team, screamed a soldier, hysteria cracking his voice. The troll lay in a smear of green blood, twitching and reaching for its lower half, its mouth wheezing. The instant its claws touched its hips, it seized its own body and pulled it back together with a wet smack. Whole again. The soldiers fired as it tumbled into the water with an unearthly howl. In the sudden silence, the soldiers fell to a number of tasks. One ran to the fallen soldier at the riverbank. Captain! The captain sat up, grunting. I'm all right. No damage. Anyone else hurt? No, sir. The gunner at Lacey's side was as wide as he was tall. He turned to the kids, his hostile face gentling. When he saw Lacey's blood, he called out, Civilian girl! Shot! Friendly fire! What the hell are you kids doing out here during a maelstrom? The captain asked, his gruff voice shaking. He picked Lacey up. She sobbed, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. A column of brown water erupted from the river and the troll shot out onto the bank, clawing its way up the slope for the captain and the girl in his arms. The soldier beside him stood. He held a shotgun. Boom, 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 boom. The troll rocked back with each shot, the crater in its chest widening. But still it advanced. The soldiers all shot at the troll bullets jerking its body about, but its black eyes glittered and it roared again. Fire team! Fire team here! Clear out! The soldier with the shotgun hauled the captain and Lacey clear, and they all retreated up the slope to join Mac and the gunner. A red chopper swung under the bridge, a siren flashing on its top, and homed in on the troll. Fry it, one of the soldiers muttered. A jet of flame lanced forward from the underside of the red chopper and enveloped the troll. It burned like a pile of leaves howling and twisting in the fire. Within seconds, it was ash. It collapsed sideways into the river, which swept it away. Lacey whimpered, holding her leg. Okay, we're done, the gunner said. We're done, sweetie. You're safe now. I gotcha. He was older and sounded like a dad. My ankle, she sobbed. I know, he said. We're sorry. That was one of our bullets. He easily lifted her in his arms, a big black gun the size of a cannon slung across his back. He had a wide face and an easy smile, with black stubble on his square chin going gray. The soldiers formed a loose perimeter around them and led them down the slope. Mac felt light, dizzy, and very jumpy. Lacey finally gathered the strength to look at her wound. It's ruined, she realized, wailing in despair. Her entire ankle and heel were shattered. It's okay, the gunner told her. Better than being dead. No, I'm a runner, she twisted in his arms. Running is all I have. Hold on, hold on, the gunner consoled her, as grief overwhelmed her. I can't lose my foot, Lacey sobbed, pushing at him. The gunner's gun swung around and fouled his arm. Lacey fell from his grasp. She landed beside the ichor of troll blood beside the river. I can't have it. I'll heal it. I don't care. Lacey screamed, wild, scooping the green fluid into her cupped hand. Everything suddenly moved very fast. First, Lacey clapped the green blood under the red blood at her ankle. Her body snapped like a whip, her head rocking back. She spun, arms wide, and landed unconscious on the concrete embankment. Second, Max screamed, Lacey! 
his mind filled with the horror of what she had done, yet unable to do anything but reach for her, pursuing her like he always did. Third, the soldier with the shotgun lifted it and shouted at Lacey, Down! Down now! before her body even landed. Fourth, the captain raised his hand and pulled the shotgun down. Hold fire! Fifth, the entire squad pointed their weapons at Lacey. Only five heartbeats had elapsed. The fresh green blood of goblins and trolls and ogres made human bodies whole. It had been known for years now. Yet the person never seemed to escape unscathed. To willingly breach your own body with a monster's blood was like committing suicide. The captain and the soldier with his shotgun-locked eyes silently arguing. Nah, come on, team. She's just a girl, the gunner said, dropping his gun. Not anymore, a rifleman said. He pointed at Lacey's ankle with the barrel of his gun. The ankle was whole again, purple and swollen, but whole. We are not shooting a human girl, the captain said loudly, but the three soldiers didn't drop their weapons. It was our fault. Our friendly fire wounded her. Captain, the rifleman said, we can't. We're supposed to dispose of anyone breached on the battlefield. That's the ROE, sir, the third soldier, a young, fair-skinned rifleman said. Disobeying that is like a court-martial offense, sir. We are not shooting this girl, the captain insisted, stepping in between the soldiers and her fallen body. The soldier lifted his shotgun. Move aside, sir. I won't. Drop your weapon, Calvin. This isn't how we operate. The captain lifted his rifle and pointed it at his soldier. Can't do that, sir. This is official National Guard policy, and I won't leave one single Greenblood left alive, I swear. This is my town, with my kids here. Put the gun down, Sergeant Hoyle. That's an order. But still the three soldiers ignored him. Calvin pressed his mouth into a firm line and advanced. The captain shot him in the left shoulder. Calvin barked in surprise and dropped to a knee, his shotgun clattering to the ground. The single shot echoed off the concrete. He looked up at the captain with outraged shock and naked hatred. The two other soldiers swung their rifles at the captain, faces filled with disbelief. I said drop your weapons, the captain roared in anger, a dreadful tone in his deep voice, nearly monstrous itself. This purity nonsense stops here. You boys are listening to too much AM radio. I won't kill an innocent girl over it. Suddenly, the fair-skinned rifleman made a shuddering sound and his rifle fell from his grasp. A blur of green wrapped around his neck and his head rocked sideways with a crack. His body sagged to the ground. Lincoln, the gunner shouted. The second rifleman screamed. He fired at a green shadow fleeing toward the water. It had no substance, only a haze that shifted across the ground. Ah, what is that? The gunner stepped to Mac's side as Lacey began to stir. Tierra, to me, the captain ordered the rifleman. He grabbed Calvin and hauled him backward toward the gunner and the kids. Tierra whirled, panicking, twisting back and forth at the riverbank. A green form leapt onto him, smothering his head with long, nearly invisible limbs. Perhaps it was man-sized and man-shaped. Perhaps it wasn't. Tierra fell and tumbled, rolling into the water, the creature wrapping him up like an octopus. They vanished into the brown river. Tierra! the gunner called, his voice cracking. He ran to the fallen body of the rifleman and sobbed in grief, then quickly pulled back to the others. The captain and the gunner stood over Mac and Lacey, whipping their guns around. Calvin held a bloody hand against his shoulder, face bewildered. Lacey choked and gasped, and Mac helped her sit up. Lacey, are you? Mac began. Her eyes went wide. She pointed over his shoulder at something behind Mac and Calvin. She screamed. 
The captain fired his rifle into the shadows. Where? he demanded. You hit it. Can't you see it? Lacey asked. It's horrible. Is it down? Where is it? It's right there, she pointed, near the spot she and Mac had hidden. Crouching! They couldn't see a thing. The soldiers all fired at the spot anyway. Green blood misted the air. Lacey covered her face. Is that it? Is it gone? The captain demanded. It's dead, she sobbed. Are there any more? Captain Monroe, Calvin demanded, lunging forward and tearing the rifle out of his officer's hands. This ends now! I'm relieving you a command. Lincoln and Tierra are dead because of you. Hugo, he appealed to the gunner. I need a witness. He never should have led us to begin with. He still thinks there's a war with rules. But it all stops now. You saw what? And then a blurry arm roped his throat and lifted Calvin back. Another limb held his arms down. He stumbled back and fell onto its shadowed body, bellowing in pain. He rolled back and forth, feet kicking out. Monroe and Hugo, the gunner, hurried to Calvin, weapons raised, trying to get a clear shot. Calvin thrashed at their feet. A shadow covered him, and blood suddenly sprayed from the side of his neck. Kill it! Calvin screamed. Just kill it! Hugo kicked Calvin onto his front and blasted the shadow off his back with a long burst. He quickly knelt, clapping his hand against the fountain of blood, but it was already flagging, Calvin sagging unconscious, a river of red blood running down the slope and joining the brown current. Hugo ripped a rag from Calvin's coat to wrap around his throat, but it was too late. Three dead soldiers in thirty seconds. No! Calvin! Monroe yelled. Damn it! What are these things? I don't know, sir! Hugo answered. Never seen anything like them! They're invisible! Monroe shouted, his gun training on every shadow. That's not even possible! Ogres and witches and goblins aren't possible either, sir! Where are they now? Monroe nudged Lacey with his boot. Miss... We need your help. Please, you can see him and we can't. They're hunting us. Miss. Lacey finally looked up at them. Mac gasped. One of her eyes had transformed into the black glittering orb of a troll. There, she pointed, near the water, at a crouching stain of green shadow. The captain and gunner both fired, their bullets catching the shadow. Then the weight of the bullets lifted it, and it fell in the river and floated away. More, he demanded. Where? But Lacey shook her head. No, that's it. You can't see anymore? You sure? There aren't any more. I can just tell. Monroe and Hugo shared a look. The corporal edged toward the monstrous corpse upslope. The dead phantom lay on the concrete embankment, still fuzzy and hard to see. Its green limbs sprawled around it, ending in dark claws. All he could see was a tangle of limbs, no body beneath. He shivered and hurried back to the others, his eyes scanning the shadows. The lanky captain knelt beside Lacey and looked at her, his dark, creased face sorrowful. Hey, listen, I just lost three men because of you. I need to know, are you still with us? With you? Lacey asked, growing frightened. Are you still human? Lacey gasped, shocked by the question. Of course I am, aren't I? Hugel, kneeling at Calvin's body, let out a shout of rage and grief. He removed the soldier's dog tags and wallet from a cargo pocket. He went to Lincoln's body and did the same thing. He squeezed the tags in his gloved fist. Look, what you did, Monroe told Lacey. Everyone knows. Our rules of engagement dictate that we're supposed to kill on sight anyone who gets breached like this. That's the law. You understand? But what you did... It's more than just breaking the law. 
You're dead to the whole world now. Dead? Lacey repeated. Yes, dead. Sorry, but it's true. Monroe sighed. Tell me, what's your name? Lacey. How old are you? Thirteen. I'm not dead, I'm just a girl. Captain Monroe shook her, his anger rising. Lacey, three men. Their blood is on your head and mine, so I need you to grow up right now. He shook her again. She stared into his fierce face, her one human eye filled with fear. I'm sorry. You're hunted now, girl. Ben, Hugo said in a conspiratorial but sorrowful tone. Monroe looked at him. I won't tell if you won't. Nobody saw any of this. Not even the satellites and land scanners. We're under a bridge. There's no record. These men never mutinied. Right, Ben? It was all friendly fire trying to hit those phantoms or whatever they were. We don't need to make this any worse than it already is. Nobody did anything wrong here. It was just a tragedy. And then we got hit by a whole new class of monsters. Massive surprise and chaos. But we did the best we could. Right, Ben? Right? Ben finally nodded and dropped his head, sad. Agreed. But look at her eye. What do we do with her? My eye? What's wrong with my eye? Lacey asked, her voice cracking. Max seized her hand. It's black, he whispered. She never got shot, never got breached, okay? Hugo thought for a long moment, then added, I have no idea what to do with her, but we still gotta get out of here first. Come on. Thanks for listening to Woe Is Me, book one of The Horror Wars. Make sure to tune in next week to see if our heroes can survive. Yet another thrilling adventure on The Unuseful Hour.